0: And as I read from God's Word, we're studying Acts together. Broke off last time right in the middle of Peter's Pentecost sermon. Not an easy divide, actually, where I stopped, and yet actually the ending of a thought at verse 24. So I'm going to pick up at 25 of Acts 2 as Peter goes on quoting from the Old Testament and developing this doctrine for those who would hear him explain about Christ. Listen to God's word, Acts 2, beginning at 25. For David says concerning Jesus Christ, I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken, and therefore my heart was glad and my tongue also rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is God's own holy word. You know, when you think back I was considering the other day about advances in medicine within just my own lifetime, and particularly cardiac medicine. I believe when I was born, doctors did not know much, at least, about cholesterol. The word wasn't commonly heard. They didn't know how to measure it, and there were no drugs like Lipitor or Zocor or things like that that many of you take to keep that gooey stuff from accumulating in your arteries. There were no angioplasty procedures to put a little camera inside your blood vessels and look into the, the interior of your heart. There were no open heart surgeries to, to uh, open up blocked valves or arteries. There were no pacemakers to regularize a, an irregular heartbeat. There were no heart transplants. And as a result, heart attacks were common and, and often right out of the blue. My wife's father died at the age of 61. We thought of a healthy man, and 61 sure sounds young to me today. Sudden heart attack, thought he was a healthy man, and in two days he was gone. Considering how medicine today can minimize heart attacks, wouldn't you assume that I would be saying a bad thing when I tell you that my desire is that you have a heart attack? My desire is that you have a heart attack. Not of the physical and cardiac kind that would damage you or end your life, but I'm praying for you to have a heart attack of the spiritual kind that we have read about in the uh, the chapter of Acts 2 this morning. The kind that arrests you, that cuts you to the mind and spirit of where you live and how you think and how you respond to God, the kind of heart attack spoken of in Acts 2.37, where people were thunderstruck in their minds and their spirits and stopped cold to say, something's wrong. I have to respond to this. What should I do? I told you we're picking up in Acts 2.22 in the very middle of Peter's Pentecost sermon. Last time we looked at the explanation Peter brought as people were responding to the phenomena of the speaking in other languages as the disciples came into the streets speaking Syriac or Egyptian or whatever other language that they didn't know that God was exhibiting his truth through this gift, this miracle of languages. And people said, they're drunk. And Peter stood up to explain and said, no, no, not at all. They're not drunk. This is, this is something God has been revealing from biblical history. There was a great river of revelation all through coming from Joel and others, and, and God was revealing what he would do in these latter times. And now he's doing it. And it all comes as if in a great waterfall of revelation in Jesus Christ. And then he developed and told them that this same Jesus that God was pointing to and revealing you and and your compatriots here in Jerusalem have put to death in a lawless way. But nevertheless, it was God's plan. God's not frustrated. God's not surprised. God is accomplishing exactly what he was planning to do even through this lawlessness. And what's better And greatest of all, we left off at verse 24, as Peter said, God raised him. That was inevitable. It wasn't wasn't possible for him to simply stay dead. So now we see Peter continuing this sermon and continuing to draw upon the Old Testament. I'm going to mention a couple of these Old Testament passages that he quoted in just a moment. But it all comes to a great application of the truth in which these people were almost struck down. They were were appalled. They were astounded. And they said, you mean I'm on the wrong side of this? You mean I'm responsible for this man, Jesus, who is now exalted to God's right hand, dying? What can I do about this? As they were cut to the heart. I'm not claiming today, and some will, I'm sure, when they look at these events in Pentecost, I'm not claiming you need a great emotional experience. This isn't really about emotion. I'm not claiming that you have to fall down on your face somehow before God and and have a stunning experience, but there does need to be this kind of a confrontation with the truth that we see in our text here. When you understand at some point in your life, at whatever age, whether you're six years old or 60, I had the privilege in Sunday school today of handing Bibles to our second graders. And I looked at them, mostly seven years old, and realized that they were just a little younger than I was when I first comprehended Jesus as my own Savior. I told them about that. No matter what age you are, and it may come quietly, especially if you come to Christ as a young person, it may not be that dramatic. But you need to be cut to your heart until you realize that you had asked the question and see the answer, what shall I do about this with Jesus Christ? First of all, then, this morning, I want you to look at the section of verses 25 to 36 here as Peter is developing two Old Testament texts. And I want you to see that the Old Testament predicted the resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus. And you keep in mind as we look at this that the Bible is a unified book. It teaches one message. It's not 66 books with 66 messages. Even though some 40 people wrote those books over a long period of time without consulting one another for the most part, and in most cases they had, didn't even have necessarily knowledge of one another's writing, although certainly New Testament authors knew the Old Testament contribution. But it's one book. Theologian J.I. Packer had this to say about it. He said, there is one leading character, God the Creator, In the Bible, there's one historical perspective, that is world redemption. There's one focal point, Jesus Christ, and one body of harmonious teaching. Our scriptures are one book. And the predictions and principles laid down in the Old Testament time and again wonderfully come to fulfillment in the New Testament in the person of Jesus Christ. So first, Peter quotes this passage from Psalm 16, a blessed psalm, one that, or that is a favorite with many. It certainly is with me, especially the latter part of Psalm 16, because the psalmist David, as he's quoted here, is talking about the theme of his security, the fact that God holds him and holds him in his hand and offers him eternal life. And David says, I'm, I won't be shaken. I'm at God's right hand. And so I'm glad about that. My tongue rejoices. I dwell in hope. You won't abandon me to hell, to Hades. And then he has this phrase that you will, won't will let your holy one see corruption. And the question comes as you read that, what is David saying there? Did King David somehow think he was going to be exempt from the circumstances that all human beings go through when their bodies die, that, that their bodies would decay and he would say, well, that won't happen to me. Or did he perhaps, in, in speaking of his security in God, see something and mean something that was prophetically beyond an application just to himself? Peter certainly sees it that way and the Holy Spirit gives him to use this. You wonder if this was one of those passages and I think almost surely it was. You know, at the end of Luke, it is told how in his post resurrection body, the Lord was with the disciples and he, he opened the scriptures to them and they thrilled to see how he showed them that he was the center of it all. Don't you think perhaps he spoke to them about Psalm 16? And now Peter, under the influence of the Spirit, says, Look, here's David saying, You won't abandon my soul to Hades or let your holy one see corruption. Peter says, King David is dead. And depending exactly where they were on the Temple Mount, if you can picture Jerusalem at all, if they were in the right place, they could have looked over the wall and down a little ways into the Kidron Valley and they would have been able to see not a half a mile away a marble sarcophagus that Herod had built as the tomb of David. He built it over the spot where history said David had been buried. And the people knew this. They knew that this was the the burial place, the shrine, if you would, of, of their great king under whom the, the kingdom of Israel expanded and, and saw it some of its greatest days. And P- Peter was saying, look, David's dead. You know where his grave is. And although he didn't spell it out quite this vividly, he could have said, in that grave, you can imagine, there's a skull and there's some bones and maybe dust and maybe some scraps of purple cloth that have somehow survived But David is dead. His body has seen corruption. But here's what David meant, Peter was saying. He was pointing beyond himself when God would set another descendant of his on the throne. Verse 30 here. Peter says he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. The second David, as he's called. The greater king. And it is this king who we know, because God raised him up, had a body that did not decompose. You cannot point to the place where the bones of Jesus are to be found. And then Peter glides right from that into another quote from another Old Testament text. He's a masterful preacher here. He has not just one, but several texts that he, the Spirit helps him sort of knit together into a whole And he goes in verse 34 into his quote from the other Psalm 110. We use Psalm 110 for our call to worship this morning. Did you know, by the way, here's a little factoid for you. The most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament is Psalm 110 verse 1. This that Peter quotes right here at verses 34 and 35. And it is these words, the Lord said to my Lord... Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What's Peter saying this time? Still developing the Old Testament prediction of the resurrection and now the exaltation, he's saying, who is this mystery person called the Lord that the most high Lord God speaks to and says, sit down at my right hand, I'm going to make everyone bow to you. You know, this is a really uh, curious thing, at least if you had the mentality, which none of us do, of a first century Israelite, because the concept of God most high in those times was such that in Judaism, people would say, nobody but nobody sits down in the presence of God. My wife and I were watching a movie uh, called Mrs. Brown the other night, which is made about queen victoria and, and i was reminded of of the the different um, protocols that pertain to the queen and so on and of course one of them is you don't if the queen is standing up and you come in the room you don't immediately take a chair you stay standing until the queen sits and if the queen stands you stand now that's just something that pertains to a a human monarch but in judaism people understood god is the exalted one nobody sits by him unless by invitation or special privilege. And if someone is called the Lord, the very name of God, and has said, sit down by me, why that person must have the same rank as the Lord God Almighty. I recently passed the marker of my 45th anniversary of my high school graduation. That actually would have been in June. But just this month, my class up in New York State had their Reunion. I never go to these, but I sort of keep up with it. I sent in my $12 to get the little memorial book, which had all of our pictures, class of 440 students. Amazingly, in the internet age, they, they know the whereabouts or situations of all but, uh, I think, about 20 people. That's pretty astounding, actually. So I'm looking at the pictures and reading the addresses and the little memoirs and the snapshots taken at the cocktail party, which I wasn't interested in in the first place. And, but you know what stopped me cold in reading this little booklet was the very first thing, four pages of photos. I think there were about 16, uh, 12 photos on a page. It was a total of almost 50 pictures. Those who had died from the class of 1967. Boy, does that make you feel old, folks. You're all getting there. I'm sure some of you can tell me you're, you're in a minority left of your classes. But you know I was looking at that and thinking about these people remembering them 17, 18 years old and thinking well who's a president of a corporation now? Or who's a leading surgeon at a hospital? Or, or who's a congressman? I don't think we had any congressmen in our class. But who has, has really wanted up to some kind of success who maybe was a very obscure ordinary student back in the days when I knew them? You see what Peter's saying here? He's saying, a man from Nazareth, a despised town, lived and moved among you in your midst in this city, Jerusalem, and just a few years ago, that man, who wasn't noticed too much for a long time, but then all of a sudden was noticed a lot, was killed. And many of you can remember it. And some of you were even there. And not only was he killed, but he was raised up. And now he's taken the word of God and saying that resurrection was actually predicted by none other than King David. And here's another fact for you that King David wrote in another place that it was that very man being spoken about in the 110th Psalm who now sits down at the right hand of the power of God. Amazing. Do you know that If you look at your Gospels, I wonder if you've ever thought about this, the four Gospels that that tell the life of Christ, he's almost always called by his singular name, Jesus. Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus. That's the name the man had. And that's what he's usually called in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Very seldom you will find maybe, I don't think, ten total uh, numbers of times that he's called Jesus Christ in the four gospels. But from the book of Acts onward and through the New Testament epistles, all of a sudden, he's rarely called just Jesus. Now he's called Jesus the Christ or Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus or Christ the Lord or Lord Jesus. You see, something's happened in the development of the New Testament from the book of Acts onward as it is acknowledged. This ordinary Man, a peasant, a carpenter, was not just an ordinary man. He was the vehicle of God's presence on this earth. And he rose from the dead. His flesh was not corrupted. And he now is the L-O-R-D, Lord, King, Champion, Ruler, Governor of all things above heaven and earth. Peter was saying something absolutely astounding You know, it would be like they were saying, hey, Michael, did you know that that guy who sat next to you in homeroom and and, and barely got through to graduation and seemed like, you know, kind of a nerd and not much of a popular guy or anything else? He's now the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. or something like that. I'd say, no, I can't believe it. Well, this is far greater than that. And therefore, having heard that predicted from more than one place in the Old Testament, now look at how these crowds that heard Peter, and apparently there were thousands hearing him somehow. Well, first his summary in 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Then the response, verse 37. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said, What should we do? Now let me guarantee you, I, I wasn't there, I didn't hear it. If I had been there, I didn't I don't speak Aramaic, so I don't know, you know, or I can read ancient Greek, but I, I I wouldn't have known what they were saying. But let me guarantee you, I know that they didn't say, Hmm, that's very interesting. What should I do about that? These people were melting inside. They said, What should we do? We're indicted. We're guilty. We did this. We were part of it. We're on the wrong side of God. How in the world can we possibly respond to make this thing right? That's what they were saying. Almost 300 years ago, the great preacher Jonathan Edwards preached a famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, in which he portrayed God's righteous wrath against those who don't have a covering in Christ. He didn't say it to scare people. He said it to reveal what the Bible says about God's wrath in a a just and correct way. And he wasn't manipulating emotions or anything else that day in Enfield, Connecticut. In fact, he had preached the same sermon to his congregation in Northampton, and hardly anybody reacted. Amazing. He preached it in Enfield, Connecticut down the road a ways And you may have read or heard that that day, the shrieking and the moaning and the crying out and the shouts from the congregation were so tumultuous that the preacher had to stop until people would quiet down. What should we do? There's a God whose wrath we're going to have to face. Edwards certainly saw this heart attack of the Spirit. And that's what's happening here. These people were disturbed. They were stabbed in their consciences. You know, Jesus had predicted before he was killed and and then resurrected that something like this would happen. John 16, 8, he said that one of the roles of the Holy Spirit would be to, quote, convict the world of sin and judgment. When the Holy Spirit comes, this is the first thing that happens. People get convicted. I'm not in the right place. Something's wrong. Something has to change or I'm in trouble. Now, people don't always shout or scream. They don't always fall on the floor or, or have tremendous emotions over this. But they must have this spiritual realization that is deep and it is profound that they need to respond to God. The story is told about another t- Preacher from the same time as Edwards, George Whitfield. He preached in America, but also in England and Wales. And numerous times, Whitfield preached for coal miners. He he loved to preach to the common people. He went out into the fields where they were, near the markets where they were, and he would go to the coal mines when the laborers were. He, I'm sure, he found out, you know, what's the work schedule? When do the men get out? I mean, he wasn't going to preach when everybody was underground, but when they were on their way up, when they were coming out of the pit to go home. Whitfield would would find a a stump of a tree or something and preach there, and people were gathered to his eloquent proclamation of the gospel. And the stories told more than one occasion when the coal miners were coming out of the pit and they heard Whitfield. Here are these men, and imagine having their jobs, especially 300 years ago, no safety standards, no unions, no anything. And here are these filthy men, black from head to toe. Coming, gathering, listening to Whitfield, and the, the, the testimonies are that were they moved? Were they affected? Did they shout out? Did they say, What should we do? No, but they were affected, and they knew it one way. Because on the blackened faces of the coal miners were white streams of the tears running down their faces as they heard about Christ and responded to Christ. They knew they had to do something. And that wasn't a preacher pulling the strings of somebody's emotions. That was men or women experiencing dire helplessness and need that they recognized only God could fill. That was was a person coming, as the hymn writer said it, helpless, I come to you for grace. Helpless. Helpless. Until you know you're helpless, you're not going to look for the help where it will come from. Where does it come? Following some rules? Following a a recipe for behavior? Or does it come, as Zachariah said, not by might or by power, but by my spirit? God moving in and taking hold and changing people, giving them that spiritual breakdown so that they see they need a new response they've never made before well thirdly then Peter gives God's remedy for this heart attack when it is upon a person what should we do here's the answer the preacher gave two answers first was the word repent this was a word these people knew they had known John the Baptist they had read the Old Testament prophets prophets were always saying repent We seem to think the word repent primarily means have regret, feel sad, be sorrowful about your sins. It does mean that, but that's actually not the primary meaning. The primary meaning is turn around. Immediately arrest the course you've been on of this world and this world's thinking and the idea that you can make a deal with God or you can impress God or somehow do the right things Turn around, turn to him and give yourself to him in a whole new way. That's repentance. It calls for changes in behavior. Not just good intent, not just feeling bad about your past. The Westminster Shorter Catechism is actually printed out in the back of your hymnal. You don't have to turn there but I'll tell you what it says in defining repentance in answering a question about what is repentance unto life. It says repentance unto life is is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of the true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred turn from that former life to God with the purpose of a new obedience. That's repentance, turning around. Well, then the other thing Peter says to do is repent and be baptized. Now, you know, in the 20th century, evangelical believers have sort of, or at least Americans have set up this sort of code phrase for how you become saved in Christ. And I'm sorry to tell you, it actually is not a biblical phrase, even though it's accurate and I have no problem with you you saying it. What's our phrase? It is this. What should I do? Why? Accept Jesus Christ as your personal savior. Isn't that what we say? And that's not wrong. I'm not making fun of that. But that's not Peter's reply. Peter's reply was repent and be baptized. And he goes on to say, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized. Baptism is an act of faith, an act of public declaration. I make my stand with Christ. I trust Christ. I am one of his. I step forward. I'm not afraid to step out of the world and say, he's mine. And that washing from sin that he does within that nobody sees happen is just symbolized in this water applied. Now, when a believer, an adult, a a thinking person has that heart attack and makes that response, that's the act of faith, baptism. The believer's child, the faith is anticipatory of what we hope would be in the future. We won't argue about that subject of baptism right now, except that this is what Peter gave. He said, repent and be baptized. This is how you respond. If God the Spirit has convicted you, you need to respond. You need to do something. Repent and take your stand with Christ. Take your stand with the symbol of washing and new life. And you will receive forgiveness of sins and the presence of the Spirit. That is salvation, folks. Forgiveness of sins and presence of the Spirit. No no Christian is a Christian without those things. Forgiveness of sins and presence of the Spirit. You don't have a Christian who comes and says, well, I only got half of it. God forgave my sins, but I didn't get the Spirit. No, you're wrong. Either your doctrine is wrong or you're not a Christian. Because when God makes a Christian, his promise through Peter is forgiveness of sins and the presence of the Spirit. 3,000 people believed that that day. Today we talk about mega churches. The accepted sociological definition of a mega church is, is somewhere around 2,000 members. We're not a mega church. I'm happy we're not. 3,000. Think of it. The, the band at Pentecost was about 120. Add 3,000. You know, I try to figure out how to deal with a membership class twice a year of 35 or 40 and assimilate them and know them and, and draw them into Christ's body. 3,000! At one time, God remade. God did what Ephesians 2 talks about. He made you alive when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. God did this. You didn't do it. You didn't step up and say, I think oh, I have a nice little notion. I think I'll become a Christian. You didn't decide to take up Christianity. Christianity took you up. The Holy Spirit of God awakened you from your deadness. And when you said after that, what should I do? The answer is repent. Turn around. Turn to God. Turn to a new way. Turn to his word. Turn to Jesus Christ. And take upon you the sign of new life and forgiveness that God has provided. Is there somebody today who's asking themselves, I think I've had a heart attack. You've, you've had the physical kind. Don't report to me because I can't help you. But the spiritual kind, I can tell you what to do. Repent and be baptized. Step forward. Identify with Christ. Walk in faith into a new life that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit cooperate in doing for you all that is necessary to give you salvation. If you've done that a long time ago, thanks be to God. Walk in that faith that started with a heart attack even today. Amen. Father, You give us these many different ways of understanding that salvation is a revolutionary, radical thing. It's not a philosophy. It's not a religion that we pull off the shelf and say, I think I'll choose this religion instead of that religion. It's a whole new life. And I pray, oh God, if you're giving this revolutionary life to someone today, make it clear to them what you're doing. And make it clear to those two who may have had their heart attack a long time ago that your life is continuing in them now, even unto eternity. We thank you for Jesus' sake. Amen.